Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Donald Trump may be indicted for the January 6th coup attempt today. Or not, but... If Jack Smith repeats the timeline from the stolen classified documents case with his Florida Trump grand jury, when Smith's Washington Trump grand jury meets today, as it usually meets on Tuesdays, starting at 1 p.m. at the E. Barrett Prettyman Courthouse in D.C., that grand jury will seemingly be just stepping into that part of the timeline in which we can actually say the indictments should be handed up any time now. In fact, today could be exactly the same day on that timeline that we were on the first indictments timeline when the indictments actually happened, with the understanding that this is academic, unless they are taking bets on this in Vegas. I'll take the Mets over the Yankees, Japan over Costa Rica at the World Cup, and the Trump indictments today, and I'll take the over. With that understanding, let me walk you through my math. It was two Sundays ago, the 16th, Trump says anyway, when his attorneys notified him they had received the target letter for January 6th indictments. Assuming that date is correct, even though it was a Sunday, which would not seem to make sense, we are now, right now, at the start of day 10 on this timeline. Fix that in your mind. Day 10 of this timeline. 
The timeline on the first Smith indictments for the stealing of documents and stashing them at Mar-a-Lago is a little hazier because Trump never said exactly when he got target letter number one for that first set of 37 counts. But there has been a lot of source reporting as to when that letter was received, and unfortunately, dates vary. Some real-time reporting said the letter arrived in the last few weeks. Other reporting said last week. If it was, in fact, the preceding week, that was the week of Memorial Day. So what if the letter had been received on the first workday of that week, Tuesday, May 30th? Trump's lawyers met with the Smith team on Monday, June 5th. News of the target letter leaked on Wednesday, June 7th. Trump revealed he had been indicted on Thursday, June 8th. Shortly thereafter, we learned that the grand jury had handed up the indictments earlier that same day, June 8th. That makes the time span from the first target letter to the first indictments day 10 of that timeline, 10 days. As I mentioned, today is day 10 of this timeline. Many, many caveats, even if that timeline is exactly accurate. You don't have to stick to a timeline for this second set of indictments or any other indictments. The span between the first target letter and the first indictments could have been amazingly fast. It could have happened far earlier than May 30th. The span might have been 17 days or 24 days. And just as dubious, the second target letter arrived on a Sunday. A Sunday? What, they drove the letter from Washington to Mar-a-Lago? If the second target letter actually got there earlier than Sunday and Trump misled people, I know or for whatever reason, they delayed notifying him, I know, then today is not day 10 of the second timeline. It could be day 11 or day 12. The only purpose to this silliness really is to underscore what I said at the beginning. Today, that Jack Smith Trump DC grand jury seems to be stepping into that part of the timeline in which the actual second set of indictments seems possible, practical, doable, or as I once heard it phrased by a long-ago anchor on the CBS all-news radio station in New York in a statement that has literally stuck with me since 1981, quote, the next development in the baseball strike negotiations could happen as early as today. And if you think about that, you will recognize that not only does that have to be true, it cannot possibly not be true because the next development in anything in the universe could happen as early as today. If the next development could happen as early as yesterday, we're all in big trouble. So welcome to day 10. Maybe. Unless it's really day 11 or day 12. I was told there would be no math. Just remember these other numbers. U.S. Code 18, Section 241, that is conspiracy against rights. That would be interfering with the counting of legitimate votes, the post-Civil War law for Reconstruction voting against the KKK with or without violence. U.S. Code 18, Section 371, conspiracy to defraud the United States. And U.S. Code 18, Section 1512, corruptly obstructing an official proceeding. And those indictments will happen today or Thursday, or next Tuesday, or next Thursday, but probably earlier than two weeks from today, unless there are other factors. 
In developments that are slightly less like nailing jello to the wall, NBC News says that Richard Donahue, the former acting deputy attorney general, has met with the special counsel's office. You may remember Donahue from the House committee hearings. He was one of the good guys. He and his boss, Jeff Rosen, were the ones to whom Trump said, just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. And to whom Trump insisted there was a suitcase full of fraudulent ballots. And they said, no, they would not say that. And, quote, no, sir, there is no suitcase. Presumably, Donahue would be supplying still more grist for Jack Smith's mill on his central theme that Trump knew damn well the election was not stolen, but still pretended that it was. Section 371 does say conspiracy to defraud the United States. And there is that entire separate line of inquiry about literally defrauding those who donated to his assorted PACs and campaigns and funds to audit votes and file for recounts and otherwise stop the steal that wasn't stolen. So would those who were at a February 2020 Oval Office meeting that CNN says has now become a subject of some fascination among the prosecutors. Trump told election officials and his own staffers at that meeting, February 2020, how pleased he was by improvements to the security of American elections and specifically improvements to the security of paper ballots and audits of vote tallies. Within two months, of course, Trump would be claiming that paper ballots, especially the ones that were mailed in, were insecure and rife for fraud. By September, he was screaming that. By November, he was insisting the entire election had been compromised by that. And there's one development which I actually think is less important than we are being led to believe. The ex-New York City police commissioner and also ex-con Bernie Carrick has turned over, quote, thousands of documents produced by Rudy Giuliani's team as it tried to find or create non-existent voting fraud after the 2020 election. The same boatload has also been turned over to Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss in their suit against Giuliani, and I'd be a lot more intrigued and my mind would turn to the rhetorical question, did Carrick flip on Rudy? If Carrick's lawyer, Tim Parlatori, former Trump lawyer Tim Parlatori, had not revealed that he and Carrick had shown all of those 2,000 or so documents to the Trump legal team at 1-800-INSURRECTION, and the Trumpers said they saw no need to claim executive privilege on any of the documents. Parlatori says he will sit down with the special counsel's office in about two weeks to discuss, presumably with Bernie Carrick sitting there too, trying to remember where he is. On the Trump temperature front, yesterday's social media posts were heavily vainglorious boasting along with polling, plus one shot at Biden, one reposting about Merrick Garland being guilty of collusion, and one reposting of the standard brilliance of Marjorie Pornography Green from a week ago, in which Green called Jack Smith, quote, a weak little bitch for the Democrats, unquote, which I am putting on a post-it for when Marge gets indicted by Smith late this year. Am I guessing on that? I'm guessing on that. Did the odds of my being right just go up? The odds of my being right just went up. But mostly, it was Trump posting moronic polls, moronic even for him, the exemplar of which came from the British tabloid The Daily Mail, in which New Hampshire voters were asked to select not just their favorite for the Republican nomination or for the general election, but, quote, New Hampshire Republicans picked Donald Trump over Ronald Reagan as their dream president. 
Trump, 35%. DeSantis, 7%. Chris Sununu, 6%. Ramaswamy, 3%. Romney, 3%. Tim Scott, 3%. Ronald Reagan, 3%. As you may know, I am no fan of Ronald Reagan. But in his defense, I would like to point out that even Republicans are smart enough to realize that he is dead and that a dead president slows down those cabinet meetings. I would also note here that over the weekend, it turned out that obeying rulings by the Supreme Court has apparently become optional, according to the Republican Party. A federal court has ruled that the new congressional map in Alabama had been drawn in a discriminatory way against minority voters and that two majority black districts would have to be created. Alabama took that to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court upheld the lower court's ruling against Alabama and for the two majority black districts. On Friday, the Republican legislature approved a new Alabama congressional map, one majority black district. And Governor Kay Ivey signed the legislation, quote, the legislature knows our state, our people and our districts better than the federal courts or activist groups. And I am pleased that they answered the call, remained focused and produced new districts ahead of the court deadline. The ante was raised hours later when the state senator who sponsored the new map, he is from Scottsboro of all places, broadened the list of elected officers who had just ignored the Supreme Court from just the governor of the state and now to include Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy. To quote State Senator Steve Livingston, I did hear from Speaker McCarthy. It was quite simple. He said, I'm interested in keeping my majority. That was basically his conversation. Well, there you have it. I once suggested it was time to ignore the Supreme Court, and Marco Rubio put out a tweet implying I had just committed a federal crime. And here, the Republicans have beaten the Democrats to ignoring the Supreme Court altogether. Supreme Court, now optional. Roe v. Wade, not overturned. Elimination of affirmative action, never happened. Clarence Thomas, have to lower his prices. Oh, and the Second Amendment case that etched it in stone, even though the Second Amendment doesn't have the word own in it or any synonym for own, as in right to own a gun. District of Columbia versus Heller, now optional. Thank you, Kay Ivey and Kevin McCarthy. Also of interest here, yes, Meta and not Elon Musk owns the rights to the letter X for social networking. But the supposed replacement of the tweet with the X-E-E-T, presumably pronounced she, as in, uh, yeah, I sent that out on social media. I just took a sheet. Apparently that's not true. And also in a new all new edition of Countdown. Baseball's new Hall of Famers, one of them was traded away by the New York Yankees at the insistence of a Yankee player. You've never heard that story before. And the other one, Scott Rowland, once told me that his highlight of the year 1996 was an elaborate and superb practical joke that he and his minor league teammates and managers pulled on me in 1996. And I said, wait, 1996 was the year you made the major leagues. Whereupon Scott Rowland said, that's next. This is Countdown. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Countdown with Keith Oberman. Postscripts to the news, some headlines, some updates, some snarks, some predictions. Dateline Bismarck, North Dakota. The sentient pair of eyebrows running for the Republican presidential nomination has done it again. Governor Doug Burgum not only offered anybody who donated a dollar a $20 gift card, but he put Biden $20 relief card on it without ever thinking that that might sound like Biden gave you the $20. Might it not? Now he is selling T-shirts for $35 that read, Doug Burgum, try that in a small town. If you don't get that reference, that is the name of the Jason Aldean song banned from country music television because it basically says if you protest in a small town, you will be and should be lynched. So that's Doug Burgum, your pro-lynching candidate. By the way, the small town Jason Aldean grew up in, Macon, Georgia the metropolitan area of which has nearly a quarter of a million residents, two sports franchises, and a Division I football program. Dateline Barbie Land. I, I, don't, I don't care if you liked Oppenheimer or you didn't, or you liked Barbie or you didn't, or you went to Oppenheimer or Barbie or both or you didn't. But when did it become a law that every news organization in this country had to take a cheesy stunt suggested by PR people and run with it and run it into the ground? The Barbenheimer stuff, or if like me, you prefer the other option, Oppenby. 
The Wall Street Journal wrote one article talking about the arrival of a beloved icon in pink, and the article had the punchline, what we're not talking about, Barbie. And it also had another article about a blockbuster movie about something explosive that was being prepared in 1945, and that punchline was, quote, it's not Oppenheimer. The Washington Post offered 16 ways we think about Barbie. Post writers search for the meaning of a toy that has fascinated Americans since 1959. And the answer is, there is no meaning. The meaning is, it's a toy. And the best or worst of them all, right-wing buffoon Ben Shapiro is now forever linked to dressing up in the same outfit Ken wears in the film, then burning the Barbie doll because it was one of the most woke movies I have ever seen, and noting go woke, go broke, only to find out a few days later that in its opening weekend, Barbie made $337 million worldwide. <laughs> Thank you, Nancy Faust. And Dateline, New York. One of my neighbors died on Friday. I met him six or seven years ago in Central Park, not far from our homes. Actually, our dogs met. I had two then. One of them, Rose, does not like other dogs. So as we approached a Maltese and its two humans near the waffle truck in Central Park, I prepared for the worst. But Rose liked Happy, as I soon learned the pup was named. And as the three dogs played, Happy's bipeds and I started chatting about dogs and Malteses and the ages of dogs and what to do about red tear stains and the neighborhood and who we knew in the place. And finally, after about six or seven minutes of this, Happy's male biped and I realized simultaneously that we recognized each other. I know you, he said. I miss your show, Tony Bennett said. You're... You're... I could see the look of alarm as I began to tell Tony Bennett he was Tony Bennett. Obviously, Tony Bennett did not want anybody announcing his presence in the middle of a crowded part of Central Park where there was a line to the waffle truck. I know you. You're... You're Happy's dad. He laughed. We shook hands. He introduced me to his wife. And now I noticed he had grown a mustache. Always wanted to try one. What do you think? I think I should have had one all these years. Now we talked about mustaches. At 90, Tony Bennett was growing a mustache. From what he said, it was for the first time. And he was thinking that the previous 70 years, without having a mustache, were flawed in some way. And anybody who can be as forward-looking at age 90 as to reassess something as fundamental as facial hair had my eternal respect. Well, it turned out we lived a block apart. His friend, uh, her name was Gaga, I think, used to live in the apartment above mine. I used to see him periodically in the years afterwards in the park, and I made a big deal about Happy. Tony always showed up on Twitter with his dog, Happy. You know by now about his having been one of the American soldiers at the liberation of Dachau and how he recovered from drug abuse in a time when it killed musicians' careers and killed musicians and his participation in the Selma marches and that the singular voice of his was just one part of an extraordinarily multifaceted life. And now you know about him and his Malteses and me and my Malteses and how one of my favorite neighbors to run into was probably the most famous person in the neighborhood.
in either role, I will miss him very much. Still ahead on an all-new edition of Countdown, there are two new Baseball Hall of Famers this week. One of them hit 493 home runs, not one of them for the team that originally signed him, the New York Yankees. Fifteen years ago, I was told a franchise secret as to how the Yankees managed to trade Fred McGriff and got nothing for him. Basically, an active Yankees player made the trade happen. Unbelievable. I will tell this story in things I promised not to tell. First time for the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The bronze, Fox, quote, news, unquote. It has run countless segments, plus several website stories about how the American Women's World Cup soccer team mostly did not sing the national anthem as it played before the first match of their tournament. Fox even showed a picture of Megan Rapino taking a knee during an anthem at a game seven years ago. A, that's what we have our military do, stand in respectful silence, especially at international events during our anthem. B, Fox's broadcast network and its sports network claim to carry something like 7,000 hours of live sporting events annually. And ask yourself this question, how many times a year does Fox televise... The national anthem, like once at the Super Bowl. So why does Fox hate our national anthem? The runner-up, Elon Musk. Yeah, you know already what he did. He took a business that had its own proprietary verb to tweet, and he threw it away because the name Twitter was not something he could take credit for. And taking credit for the work and creativity of others is all Elon Musk can do. He tried this before when one of his companies merged with PayPal and he wanted the name PayPal removed even though people used it as a verb too and he wanted to call it X or X PayPal because again, if he can't claim credit for it, out it goes. One joke and one postscript to Twitter X or X Twitter. Musk had the name Twitter stripped off its headquarters in San Francisco yesterday, but he failed to get approval from the city first for the heavy equipment to do that, so the cops stopped it after the first five letters had been pulled down. So now it just reads, Urgh. Also the joke, he's calling it X because Putin already took Z. But the winner, the One World Observatory, which is the observation deck atop the World Trade Center in New York. It has a Twitter account, which basically exists to try to sell you tickets that cost as much as $74 to go to the observatory. And it does this by showing you photos taken from the top of the building or photos of the top of the building. Its latest is the latter, a photo of the building captioned, quote, captivating moments in broad daylight at One World Observatory. The image, is of the World Trade Center in daylight at about two inches to the right of the building in the photo is a passenger jet. So the advertisement to get you to go to the World Trade Center observation deck is a photo of the World Trade Center with a plane next to it. The folks at One World Observatory at the World Trade Center never forget, except you forgot. Today's worst persons in the world.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Number one story on this all-new edition of Countdown and my favorite topic, me and baseball's new Hall of Famers inducted Sunday. And even though Fred McGriff and Scott Rowland are the Hall of Famers, remember this segment is about me. Fifteen years ago or so, I was having dinner in the press room at Yankee Stadium in New York with the then vice president of the Yankees in charge of keeping all the other vice presidents from screwing things up. The man who was their former general manager, their former field manager, twice. And in my youth, their starting shortstop, Gene Stick Michael. Of all the hundreds of people who worked for George Steinbrenner when he lived and owned the Yankees, none has ever been more undisturbed by the experience. Gene Michael took the abuse. Gene Michael took the money. Gene Michael took the plane out of town. And when George offered him more money to come back, Gene Michael took the plane back into town. He was also a delightful man, possibly the nicest man to work for the Yankees under George Steinbrenner. And he continuously, for the length of time I knew him, tried to coach me on how to improve something from the TV show, the bit at the end when I would crumple up a piece of copy paper and throw it at the camera. If you just tighten up that that wadded up piece of paper, it'll move better. You'll have more control of it. You'll actually hit that camera. As I said to him, stick, you understand this is the shortstop of the Yankees from when I was a kid, from when I was nine until when I was 15. And he's explaining to me how to improve my throwing. This is surreal. Anyway, 
for whatever reason that night, we started talking about terrible trades made by the Yankees, and Lord knows there were enough of them, and Gene confirmed that most of them, when he was nominally in charge, were foisted on him by that singular owner, George Steinbrenner. When George got suspended from baseball for paying a small-time hood for blackmail against one of his own players, Dave Winfield, and by the way, it was a small-time hood whom I once employed as a radio stringer, a guy named Howard Spira, George, being suspended, was unable to make any more of those terrible trades, which were always young players like Jay Buhner for gaudy baubles like Ken Phelps. You may have heard about that one on Seinfeld. Or there were trades he wanted to make, like uh, sending a pitcher named Mariano Rivera to Seattle again for a shortstop named Felix Vermeen because George did not think his rookie shortstop that year was going to make it. His rookie shortstop that year was named Derek Jeter. So within a few years, the players that Steinbrenner could not trade won four World Championships in five years, including 14 consecutive World Series games. And I don't think we'll ever see anything like that again. So talking about those terrible trades, without which the Yankees might have won 10 World Championships over 15 years, we naturally came to the Fred McGriff trade. On December 9, 1982, the Yankees traded Fred McGriff to the Toronto Blue Jays with outfielder Dave Collins and pitcher Mike Morgan for a relief pitcher named Dale Murray. Fred McGriff went on to hit 493 home runs, plus two more against the Yankees in the 1996 World Series, and reached the Hall of Fame and never play one day with the team that drafted him. Dale Murray pitched in 62 games for the Yankees and got a save. One save. The McGriff trade, Stick said. That one was Lou. I was very confused. Lou, Stick? You mean George, right? Lou. I said, Lou Pinella? He wasn't general manager then. He, he wasn't general manager for another five years. Exactly, said Gene Michael, matter-of-factly. That was the problem. Lou was still a player. He took a bite out of his meal. Blue Jays went around Bill Burgish. I think Bill was the general manager and I was the vice president or the other way around. I don't remember. And he went around me and he went to George and, and he offered to take Dave Collins off his hands and give him Dale Murray. And all they wanted was this minor league kid named McGriff or something. So naturally, George didn't tell Bill or me because he knew if there was a minor leaguer involved, we'd try to stop it. He just called Lou Pinella instead. Now, look, the first rule of trades is Never ask a player about a trade, because what can happen next is, well, what actually happened next? Lou said, George, you mean to tell me you have the chance to get Dale Murray? Dale Murray is the toughest relief pitcher in the American League, George, and you get rid of that terrible contract you signed Dave Collins to? Don't hesitate. Take it before they change their minds. That's what George did, Stick said. I found out about it when I heard about it on the radio. I sat there unable to speak. Finally, I asked Gene Michael why Pinella thought Dale Murray was the toughest relief pitcher in the American League when, in fact, he was not even the toughest relief pitcher in the American League named Dale. See, that's why you don't ask a player about a trade. Dale Murray was tough on only one hitter in the entire American League, and the hitter was Lou Pinella. Lou could not buy a hit off of him. He could never pick up the ball in Dale Murray's delivery. 
There was only one guy Dale Murray could get out. It was Lou Pinella. Of course, Lou Pinella thought he was the toughest. He was the toughest on Lou Pinella. And that's why Fred McGriff went into the Hall of Fame with a plaque on which he is not wearing a New York Yankees cap on his head. The player Fred McGriff was inducted into the Hall of Fame with, Scott Rowland, him, I have a far more personal connection to. In the summer of 1996, I got a note from Bill Robinson, like Pinella, a long-ago New York Yankees outfielder who I had met as a kid and who I'd gotten to know a little bit when he was with the Pittsburgh Pirates and who I'd gotten to know a little bit better when he was a terrific coach with the New York Mets. In 1996, Robbie was trying his hand at managing in the minor leagues. He was managing the Phillies' second-level farm club, the one that played at Reading, Pennsylvania, in the Eastern League. The Eastern League had a team in New Britain, Connecticut. Let me say that correctly in the local vernacular. New Britain. And its ballpark, which looked like something out of the 17th century, but in fact had been built like two years earlier. It was literally 15 minutes from my house and 30 minutes from my office at ESPN. Boy, we go by that exit for ESPN every time we go to New Britain, Bill Robinson said. Players all say, why don't we get off here and go see their studios? So Bill offered me a deal. If I would take his team on a tour of ESPN, he would have me join the Reading Phillies for one day as a coach. I would get a uniform, spikes, defensive charts to keep to fill out during the game, and I would sit on the bench with him during it. Guys will get a kick out of it. Plus, you get to meet our top prospect, this kid, Scott Rowland. So we made that deal. We did the ESPN tour. I went over to the New Britain ballpark late one afternoon, and sure enough, they had a uniform that fit, and a pitcher named Wayne Gomes loaned me a pair of his size 14 shoes, and they gave me the defensive chart book and showed me how to use it, and there I was for one day, the bench coach of the Reading Phillies of the Eastern League. Somewhere, it would say, Olbermann was in professional baseball for one day as a coach. This kid, Roland, was cordial, very nice, but he was so far out in front of everybody else on that team and in that league that he barely had to pay attention. He spent much of his time in the dugout practicing his golf swing with imaginary clubs, and then he'd go up to the plate and hit the ball off the outfield fence. Bill Robinson told me stories of breaking into the majors as a rookie, as a teammate of Mickey Mantle, so I told him stories about Mickey Mantle asking me for advice on how to do interviews. The players were great. We all had a good time. And around about the seventh inning, I found myself sort of pinned between two players. I don't have any notes or photos from this game. To my surprise, I did not even write down what number was on my uniform, which leads me to think the uniform may have been blank without a number. But I look at the roster of your 1996 Reading Phillies, and I'm certain one of the guys wedged next to me was a baseball lifer named Matt Giuliano, and the other guy on the other side wedged next to me was a utility player named Doug Angeli. So the three of us, Matt and me and probably Doug, were immersed in a conversation about something when one of them suddenly shouted towards the home plate umpire, Hunter Wendelstedt, Hey, Blue! Where the hell was that pitch, Blue? Not an uncommon event at a baseball game, nor an uncommon quote. What happened next was uncommon. The umpire, Hunter Wendelstedt, took off his mask and walked towards our dugout. Who said that? And the two guys on either side of me, 
the two Redding Phillies both immediately, simultaneously pointed at me. Him, Hunter! And Hunter Wendelstedt promptly threw me out of the game. The Redding bench cracked up. There were players doubled over in laughter. I thought it was funny, but I also assumed it was a gag within a gag, and they had not really set me up to be ejected from my only game that might be registered somewhere as my day as a baseball coach in uniform for a professional team. So I just sat there on the bench. Come on, come on, Wendelstedt shouted at me. Now the manager, Bill Robinson, came back over. He said, you better go. He's serious. And so I decided, well, I better get my money's worth. I ran out of the dugout towards Hunter Wendelstedt and started screaming at him, but I switched it up. Everything I said was a compliment. Your strike zone has been superb tonight. And then, you'll make it to the majors and won't be just because your father is an umpire. And now he's telling me to stop complimenting him because he's about to bust out laughing. So I said, all right, try this instead. And I reenacted something I had read years before in Jim Bouton's matchless baseball book, Ball Four, something that had been done by the manager of the Seattle Pilots team, Joe Schultz, when he was arguing balls and strikes with an umpire. I took off my glasses and I offered them to the umpire. And he threw me out of the game again. To their credit, after the little thing with the glasses, the Reading Phillies who had with Bill Robinson and Hunter Wendelstedt and Scott Rowland all been in on it, stood and applauded my gag as I walked off. I shook a few hands as I did, Rowland included. See you in the big leagues, Rowland. Off I went. I changed out of the uniform. I went home. My career over keeping my Reading Phillies game-used hat as my only souvenir of my only game in baseball. Well, my only seven-ninths of a game in baseball. Years later, I got Wendelstedt back. He was umpiring home plate in a game at Yankee Stadium, and I was in my seats right behind home plate. And in that moment between the anthem and the first pitch, he was scanning the stands and doing the whole... I'm the umpire. I'm in charge. I'm cool, bit. And as he swept the stands with his gaze, just as he reached my spot, I screamed, Wendelstadt! Revenge! And now he's cracking up. Only it's the start of a big league game. We're not in New Britain anymore. He came over between innings. And he handed me a couple of baseballs as souvenirs, and then he invited me out for a drink. We had a great visit. Roland who was called up by the big league Philadelphia Phillies no more than six weeks after this happened in 1996 and won Rookie of the Year and then eight gold gloves and finally went into the Hall of Fame. Comes back into this story eight or ten years after the incident with uh, yelling at the umpire stuff. The next time I saw him was eight or ten years later. He was with the St. Louis Cardinals then, and I spotted him on the field in New York, and I went over to say hello, and he beat me to it. Where was it, he said. When, when when we punked you and Wendelstedt threw you out of the game, were, were we with Redding or Scranton? I said it was Redding at, at New Britain. That's right. We got the ESPN tour. The look on your face. The look on your face was the highlight of my year. And I looked at him really quizzically and I said, Scott, the, the highlight of your year? That was 1996. That was the year you got called up to the majors. And the now Hall of Famer Scott Rowland laughed and he said... 
I stand by what I said. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Here are the credits. Most of the music was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, who are the Countdown Musical Directors. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel, produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc., Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend Larry David, and everything else was pretty much my fault. Remember, Countdown is now also available on YouTube if you want to visit with an animated version of me. Anyway, that's Countdown for this, the 931st day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him again while we still can. Would today be convenient? The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow, bulletins as the news warrants. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.